Good morning, brethren. Let's get started. Um, before we uh, get into Revelation, let me just make a quick comment. I don't want to get off topic. I know some of you here in this body are privy to a uh, post or a message that Ricky shared this morning that had to do with some accusations that have been made against me personally by one of the leaders of the cult in Wells, Texas, that is the Church of Wales. Uh, I'm just going to respond to that very simply. Uh, first of all, I have no knowledge of uh, or remembrance of whatever he's referring to that supposedly happened in 2010. Um, I have no knowledge or remembrance of that. And as for worshiping the creature more than the Creator, I, I don't know where that comes from either. If going to hike in a mountain makes me a, and, and to spend time in the mountains makes me that, I guess Jesus was that as well because he took lots of time to step away from ministry and spend time in a mountain to pray and seek the Father. But I'm just going to answer that with, with a couple of passages that I was pointed to in, in the prophet Nehemiah. And when the enemy comes against you to distract you and there is no basis in his accusations, whether it be within your own heart or from the outside, then the best defense against that garbage is no defense. Those are my mom's own words. But I wanted to share with you what Nehemiah said in a situation very similar. Chapter 6, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian were harassing the Jews that were trying to build the wall and, and leveling accusations and accusing them of trying to start a rebellion and a revolution, all of these false things. And in chapter 8, Nehemiah just said, The things that thou sayest, there are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of their, thine own heart. Uh, Church of Wales, the things you say about me haven't happened. You feign them in your own heart. And then this is great, verse 3. Look, this is Nehemiah's response. I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? Look, Church of Wales, I'm involved with God's work here. It's a great work that God's blessed. I'm not going to waste my time coming down the wall to even bother myself with you. So have a nice life. That's the end of it, period. Let's move on. Turn to Zechariah, the prophet. Zechariah, the prophet. This is part two of a message I started last week in our study of the book of Revelation titled, Two Street Preachers and Zechariah's Visions. The visions of the prophet Zechariah concerning the messianic hope are tied to uh, chapter 11 in the book of Revelation because one of those visions, the vision of the two olive trees, is cited. And so I had begun by describing some of these visions to set the context of chapter 4. We talked about the rider on the red horse, the four horns, the four carpenters, the man with the measuring line. We looked at Joshua, the high priest. God gave him a clean set of garments uh, to replace his filthy garments, a beautiful picture of salvation. Joshua there in the days of the return of the exiles from Babylon, the high priest. And then we get to chapter 3, verses 8 through 10 of the prophet Zechariah. 
And there's a sixth vision that the prophet has. And it also concerns Joshua. Joshua is mentioned by name. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. This is a prophecy of Messiah, the branch. We see him referred to as the branch in the prophet Je- uh, Jeremiah as well. I believe one of those passages uh, my dad so eloquently uttered when he used to play the prophet in the, in the promise years ago. I don't know if he wants to quote that for us this morning, but we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> but look at verse 9. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So God's talking about the land of Israel. I will remove their iniquity in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. So this is the sixth of those visions. And in this vision, reference is made to a stone with seven eyes. Okay, this is very important because we have a reference to those seven in chapter 4 that is often misinterpreted in such a way that it results in a bad interpretation of the whole vision and it ends up being a messed up interpretation of Revelation chapter 11. We have to look at Scripture in its context. Okay, so this stone with seven eyes that will be put before uh, Joshua is none other than the Messiah, okay? And this is a reference to the Messiah. As we get into chapter 4, we'll have a reference to those who will come and give testimony of Messiah prior to his second coming. Let's just look at a couple of passages when we consider... Jesus Christ and this stone with seven eyes. Jason, if you look up 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8, and Daniel, Revelation 5, verse 6. Yes. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the stone that the builders rejected, but has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus speaks about himself in this sense and said, if any man falls upon this stone, he will be broken. But if the stone falls upon him, he will be ground to powder. You see, my friends, we have two choices. You can fall upon Jesus Christ and be broken for your sins and be saved, or he will fall upon you and you will be ground to powder which is eternal damnation. Jesus Christ is a precious cornerstone to those that believe. But to those who reject God, He's a stone of stumbling 
thrown in the pathway. Those that stumble at the Word, they have the inability to interpret it properly because they've rejected the salvation of Jesus Christ and preach another gospel. That's one of the problems with the church at Wells is they have rejected the biblical gospel of salvation by grace through faith and they very cleverly and subtly preach a Mormon-esque, Jehovah Witness-esque, Roman Catholic-esque gospel of works. And Paul the Apostle said that even if an angel from heaven came preaching some other gospel, let him be accursed. Jesus Christ is a stone of stumbling and when you reject God, you, don't, you can't even properly interpret the Word. You stumble at it. And that's why these cults come up with these wacko interpretations of Scripture. They don't have the ability to see it as illuminated by the Holy Spirit. But Jesus Christ is that stone of stumbling, that chief cornerstone, that stone with seven eyes mentioned here and placed in the path of Joshua the high priest. Revelation 5.6 And I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. The seven eyes on the stone are the same seven eyes that are on the Lamb. They're the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Jesus Christ is the full embodiment of God in human flesh. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Him dwells the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Not just a measure, but the fullness. We've talked about the seven spirits of God. That's referenced or the eyes of God that go to and fro throughout the earth. That's referenced in Isaiah chapter 11. And Jesus Christ quotes this passage in His ministry. Uh, what are the seven spirits of God? Isaiah 11 verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord, number one, shall rest upon Him, Messiah. The Spirit of wisdom, number two, and understanding, number three. The Spirit of counsel, four. The Spirit of might, five. The Spirit of knowledge, six. And of the fear of the Lord, seven. The seven spirits of God. They rest upon Jesus Christ, the stone with seven eyes, because He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It's interesting in this vision of Zechariah chapter 3 that it talks about the land um, having their iniquity removed in one day. This is looking forward to the end times when in a single day Israel will come to a place of repentance. They will be pushed to the utter brink and will realize finally that Yeshua is their Messiah and they will call upon Him. And their conversion, the Scripture is full of types and anti-types. Okay, we're going to talk about that here in a little bit as well with regard to this prophecy. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus happened in a moment. In a moment when he wasn't even thinking about following Jesus Christ, he was thinking about persecuting those that were. And in a moment, a light shone down from heaven and he was converted. That is a, the antitype of that conversion for a Jewish Pharisee is a conversion of Israel. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus is a type of what one day will happen to the remnant of Israel that remains uh, at the brink 
an end of the persecutions of the beast. And it will be one day in which the iniquity of the land is removed when Jesus Christ returns. And we can pray for that. And we can pray for that peace of Jerusalem as the Bible commands us. And praise God that we as Gentiles are partakers of the spiritual blessings of Abraham. And so these visions set the stage for what we see in Zechariah chapter 4. This is what is being referenced in Revelation 11. Revelation 11 is clearly showing us that the two witnesses are the antitype or the ultimate fulfillment of what's written here in Zechariah chapter 4. So I want to look at this chapter a bit. This is the vision of the golden candlestick and the two olive trees. So let's read uh, this chapter. I'm going to be doing a little uh, uh, attempt to draw something here on the board. But Zechariah 4, the entire chapter, 1 through 14. If somebody would read that. Uh, uh, Bob, would you read that please? Yes. Okay, thank you, Bob. These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. That's exactly what is said in Revelation chapter 11. So Zechariah sees this vision, and this is basically what I understand it to look like. A candlestick, the menorah from the temple. Uh, and in the immediate context, we're talking about the post-exilic Jews that return to rebuild the temple. And so we have the menorah, the seven-branched candlestick with seven lamps. 
Okay, we have a bowl on top of the, uh, the menorah with pipes leading from the bowl, seven pipes to each of the lamps. Then we have two olive trees that have what the King James says are pipes, but not the same as the pipe here. These are spouts that are coming off the trees and obviously providing the oil for the bowl, which in turn feeds the lamps. And so the trees are the source of the fuel for the testimony of light given by the menorah in the temple. The, 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 the light of the candlestick was to be a testimony, an ever-present testimony of God's truth in the temple. And it was fed with olive oil, pure beaten olive oil. There was a special way they were supposed to make it in the law. And olive oil obviously came from the olive, which came from an olive tree, which are very common over in that part of the world. But in this vision, what we have are two olive trees supplying the fuel for the testimony. That's the vision we see here. And obviously this candlestick is the menorah as in the temple or as was supposed to be in the temple. In this chapter we have an individual named just like we did in chapter 3. In chapter 3, Joshua the high priest was named. Here in chapter 4, Zerubbabel who was the governor that led the captives back under the decree of Cyrus is named. Zerubbabel is the counterpart, the civil counterpart to Joshua, who was the high priest in that day. So it's very important that two individuals in two adjacent chapters are named when we try to consider what is the immediate interpretation of this vision or what is the immediate context. Before we can look at the distant context referenced in Revelation, we should look at the immediate context. Okay, look at verse 6 of chapter 4. This is the central point of this entire vision. This is the whole point of this vision. And we have to, if this is the whole point of this vision, then it's also central in terms of the role and the ministry of the two witnesses in the time of tribulation. The angel uh, asked. Ask uh, the prophet, do you know what this is? This candlestick and these, uh, uh, these things that I've shown you. And um, the olive trees. And the prophet says, no, I don't know, Lord. And then answered and spake unto me, the angel, this is the word of the Lord unto Jerubbabel, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That is the central point of this vision. That the ministry of Joshua, the ministry of Zerubbabel in those days was not in their own power. What they would do in rebuilding the temple and regathering the people and restarting what was taken away captive wouldn't be in their own power. And it wouldn't be by their own ways. It would be by the power of God's Spirit. Ministry, biblical ministry, does not arise in human ability but in the power of God. The ministry of these two witnesses in Revelation will look very different from the apostate, quote-unquote, Christian ministries that are left behind after the rapture and working in cahoots with the ecumenical Antichrist. They'll be hated because their ministry won't be in human ability. In fact, even today, ministry that is not in human ability is despised by the apostate church. 
Ministry that God provides for, not in human ability, is despised. Ministry that is in the power of God is despised by the world. But that's true ministry. True ministry does not arise in human ability, but in the power of God. That's the central part here. God's testimony in the tribulation through His witnesses will arise in His power. Not because of anything anybody does. And they'll do it His way. Something the church of today needs to learn or remember to do. They have forgotten. There were many seemingly insurmountable obstacles in these days for the Jews. I just read or referenced something in the book of Nehemiah. That was pretty typical of what they had to deal with day in and day out. But Zerubbabel, who was the governor, he had seen the laying of the temple foundation. This was recorded in the book of Ezra. The prophet is telling him by the Spirit of God here that he would also see the placement of the headstone. You've seen the foundation laid. You will live to see the headstone, the capstone of this temple, and the completion of the work. That's the essence of this vision here. You're one of these olive trees. You're providing testimony. You've started a work. You will finish it. Friends, when ministry arises in the power of God, those that are a part of that don't just start a work. They start it and they finish it. You'll notice when we get back to Revelation 11 that nothing happens to these two witnesses until they have finished their testimony. Ministry that arises by God's Spirit has a beginning point and an end. And there's nothing anyone can do to stop it in between those two points. And that's what's being told to Zerubbabel here. And of course, we read those passages uh, from 1 Peter about Christ being the headstone. Okay? And that's the image of, uh, you know, it, it goes back to the temple. The foundation was laid and the work was completed when the headstone was set. Zerubbabel would see that. It would be placed with cheers. I think verse 10 is interesting. Who has despised the day of small things? This work that was being done was seemingly insignificant. The temple that was being rebuilt was nothing compared to the glory of Solomon's temple. There was much, many obstacles and objection on every side. A day of small things. Didn't seem that important. But the rhetorical question is asked here of the prophet. Who has despised the day of small things? Was the legacy of the second temple foundation and its completion a day of small things? Was it unimportant? In the eyes of secular world history, yes. In the eyes of those that harassed the Jews, yes. In the eyes of the seed of power in that day in Persia, yes. There were even those there in Jerusalem that thought so. And when they saw the foundation of the second temple laid, they actually wept. Because they had been alive to see the glory of Solomon's temple before it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And they wept when they recalled the glory of the first temple. Turn to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 3. This is when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple. 
something that Zerubbabel had seen. God said he would also see the completion of the work. It says in verses 10, uh, uh, um, 10 I'll, I'll start with verse 10, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priest in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asop, with cymbals, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because He is good for His mercy endures forever toward Israel. Forever toward Israel. God's not cut off His people and replaced them. Church is not a spiritual replacement of Israel. When Paul talks about the Israel of God, he's not talking about the church. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. It was rebuilt. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice. They remembered the glory of Solomon's temple. And this was nothing in comparison. But God says here, who despises the day of small things? These days of seemingly insignificant things, when a temple foundation was relayed, when a temple was rebuilt, that was nothing in comparison to the glory of Solomon's temple. These were significant in God's plan. For the glory of the second temple, it's said in the book of Haggai, would actually surpass that of the first. How is that possible? The second temple, even with Herod's renovations, never matched the glory and the beauty of Solomon's as described in the Old Testament. Turn to Haggai for a moment. It's right before Zechariah. Here's an interesting prophecy that was given in the same days. Zerubbabel and Joshua would have been there and been the recipients of these prophecies. Just as well, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi all prophesied in the days following the return of Israel from Babylon. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. This is a very important passage. We use this a lot when sharing the gospel with Israelis. Because you see, Jesus, the Messiah had to come before the destruction of the second temple. He had to. We know this from Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks, that two things would happen after the 69 weeks. Messiah would be cut off, and the people of the prince that come would, would destroy the city and the temple. So Messiah had to come before the destruction of that temple in 70 AD. Haggai tells that to us as well. Look at chapter 2. I know I'm reading a bunch of verses, but these are interesting, and they give you some fodder if you ever have an opportunity to share Christ. With, with a Jewish person and show them how Messiah had to come before the destruction of the second temple. Had to come before 70 A.D. Jesus is the only one that fits the bill. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Joshadek, the high priest, we are, obviously, these were the two primary figures in leadership, just like in Zechariah. And to the residue of the people saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? 
Is it not in your eyes in comparison as if it is nothing? But who shall despise the day of small things? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Joshadek, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. Even though this seems insignificant, I'm with you. It's important. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house, not a future temple, this house that you're rebuilding that was destroyed in A.D. 70, with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. In other words, this house compares as if it is nothing to the beauty of Solomon. And even after Herod's renovations, it still didn't compare. But God says the glory of this second temple will be greater than the glory of Solomon. Why? Why was the glory of the second temple greater than the first temple? Who set foot in the second temple that never set foot in Solomon's temple? The desire of all nations. He graced that house with his presence. The desire of all nations would set foot in this temple. That's why their work was important. God had a plan and a purpose. It seemed a day of small things, but it was a plan and a purpose. They were building a temple in which Messiah would set foot. A temple in which the veil that separated the most holy from the holy place would be rent in twain. When He died on that cross... Messiah had to come before A.D. 7, AD 70, the destruction of the second temple. He did. His name was Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach, who claimed to be Messiah. It's funny in verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. I believe this in a way foreshadows Messiah's two enterings into the temple. One at the beginning of his ministry, one at the end when he went in there and cleaned it out kicked out the money changers. If God wanted to turn over the tables of His own silver and gold, He could certainly do so. The silver and the gold was mine. And they had no right to peddle it. Do we despise the day of small things? Use this Haggai passage. This is a way to show someone that Messiah had to come before A.D. 70. Very interesting passage. A lot of these are buried in the prophets we don't really study or know much about. Jesus is all over the Old Testament. I'm going to tell you, Donald Trump got a lot of criticism this past week when he was asked about citing one of his favorite Bible verses, and he wouldn't do it. And everybody thought, oh, how terrible, he can't even give a a personal Bible verse. I've got some personal Bible verses that I wouldn't quote to a ravenous media vermin that wants to twist my words and make them say something they don't, and twist God's Word. But I did find it interesting that he said something that a lot of Christians won't say. 
He said the Old Testament and the New Testament are equal. And he said the entire Bible is incredible. I appreciated that because I love the Old Testament. It's not that was the Old Testament, we're in the New Testament now. It all reveals Jesus Christ. It's all the Word of God and they don't contradict each other. The whole Bible is incredible. Bravo, Mr. Trump. Reminds, reminds me of what President Andrew Jackson once said when a, a mocker made a comment about the Bible in his presence. He stopped in his tracks and turned to him and said, That book, my friend, is the rock upon which this republic rests. And he was talking about the whole Bible, both Old and New Testament. But the Old Testament is full of these revelations of Messiah that prove Jesus was who He claimed to be. Proofs that the self-proclaimed Messiahs of history don't have. Rabbinic Judaism has pronounced 40-some people to be Messiahs in its history. And all of these have perished. Yet they will not believe will not even acknowledge that Jesus Christ could have been who He said He was. That's the blindness of Isaiah 6. The judgment from God. But praise God, Israel is blinded in part that we might see. And one day that blindness will be opened like ours was. Praise God for that. Do we despise the day of small things? Are we caught up with the good old days? We shouldn't be. If you think your role in the church or your role in ministry is small, a day of small things, don't despise it. You don't know how God is going to use it. When I got a phone call back in 2009 from someone that wanted to introduce me to this young, interesting young man that they thought might could use some discipleship, it was a day of small things. I was pretty bored. I was pretty disappointed because I felt like some plans I had for ministry were going to fall through. I had no idea that that, that day of small things would re- ultimately put me in Ricky's path and bring him into our lives. God doesn't need glamour to accomplish His purposes. Oftentimes it's the foolish things of the world. The days of small things. Let's look real quick at a passage in Ecclesiastes. You know, if I just preached through this exegetically and I never took time to make it practical to the here and now, and we were only talking about the future, that wouldn't be balanced. Let's make it practical. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 10. Say not thou what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Even in these dark days in which we live, how often do we think back about the good old days in America? Why aren't they like today? It's not wise. We're here now. And we're here and now for a purpose. And though it's dark, just like Esther, who knows that maybe you were brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. And God used her that day of small things to preserve the Jewish people. We're here for a reason. It doesn't matter what the government does or what laws are passed or what the empty robes in the Supreme Court say about the Constitution or who gets elected president next year. We're here for a reason. Let's don't get caught up reminiscing about the good old days so that we despise these days of small things. That was one of the points that was being made. 
in the days of these two witnesses, it will seem a day of small things. It will seem very ineffective that these men are crying aloud in Jerusalem to a nation that is bought into the lies of Antichrist. When the world worships the beast, it will seem a day of small things. But it won't be, because it will be God's testimony on earth. And that testimony will produce one last great awakening, the awakening of the Jewish people. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, Who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice. The people that were questioning whether this was even going to approach the glory of Solomon or what are we doing here, they will rejoice and see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. What are those seven? They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro throughout the whole earth. That word plummet there is, this, is a plumb line. It's the same thing that Amos saw in his prophecy in chapter 7. It was a measuring tool that determined whether a wall was built straight. Zerubbabel was overseeing the building of this temple with the blessing of God. And his plumb line, the plummet in his hand, was not an earthly tool. It was a plumb line with seven eyes. Just like a stone was placed in the path of Joshua that had seven eyes. What are those seven eyes? They are the eyes of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord were behind this project. Not by might nor by power, but by spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. This is interesting because when it says the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven, they are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro throughout the whole earth. A lot of people look at that and they believe the reference to those seven is a reference to the seven lamps of the candlestick. Forgetting that a stone with seven eyes was put in the path of Joshua in chapter 3. If the seven lamps, which are fueled by two men, are the eyes of the Lord, then the entire image breaks down. And you come to weird interpretations. That would teach us that the God's eyes are fueled by the olive trees which represent, I believe, men. That doesn't make any sense. God doesn't need men. Those seven is a reference to the seven eyes on the stone and the seven eyes of the Lamb, the fullness of God's Spirit. God's fullness was behind this project. They are the eyes of the Lord, not just focused only on this one event in Jerusalem, but running to and fro throughout the whole earth. God's eyes do run to and fro throughout the whole earth. He sees all. But he waits. Every deep, dark secret. God saw everything Josh Duggar was doing long before anybody else knew about it. Long before he got caught. If you think we can go on the internet and do all that stuff in private, you're mistaken. We're watched. Everything we do is watched. Our sin will find us out. Let's get it right before it does. Let's get it right before it does. So these seven here are not the seven lamps. That's a, that's a, if, you, if you read in some commentaries, the interpretation of this vision breaks down when they don't look at the context of chapter 3. That's obviously referring to the same seven eyes on that stone. Just like Joshua was blessed in his office, Zerubbabel was blessed in his office. Um, 
Revelation chapter 5 verse 6 makes an interesting reference. This goes back to some of the things we've talked about before. Um, it says... That the seven eyes of the Lamb, we've already talked about this, are seven spirits of God that run throughout the whole earth. Okay? It all goes together. The Spirit of God oversees and measures His work regardless of man's contempt for it, regardless of man's mocking of it. So these are the overwhelming themes that set the stage for this vision. And then, the prophet asked in verse 11, what are the olive trees? What are these two olive trees? One on the right side, one on the left side of the candlestick. And what are these golden pipes that empty oil into the, out of themselves? And he answered and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. He said, These are the two anointed ones that stand before the Lord of the whole earth. When Revelation 11 says these are the two olive trees, it's referring back to this same vision. What are these two olive trees? When chapter 4 verse 2, it says that the seven lamps have seven pipes leading to them. That is from a Hebrew word, mutzka, which means a tube of metal. It's a, it's a, it's a tube. The oil would fall through the tube and fuel the light. But in verse 12, we're told that there are two pipes coming out of the olive tree into the bowl. This is the Hebrew word tzantara. I don't know if my, my pronunciation is correct. It's not a good idea to pronounce, pronounce Hebrew and Greek words in the pulpit. I was told by a wise preaching professor years ago. He's right. You're not going to remember that. But these words, this is a pipe in the sense of a gutter or a spout. One of them's a tube. One of them's a spout. So it's obvious that the oil is emptying out of the tree and filling this bowl. And through the bowl, from the bowl, the oil goes through the tubes to fuel the lights. The light is the testimony. These olive trees are the source of fuel in that day. Obviously, this is talking about the menorah, the seven-branched candlestick in the temple. The golden bowl is the reservoir for the oil that fuels the seven lamps via seven tubes. The olive trees supply the oil to the bowl via two spouts. We can't deny that this is in the context of the temple. So it has to be the temple menorah. Okay? There are a lot of mistaken interpretations about what these two olive trees are. Some people say it's one is Israel, one is the church. Some people say one is the Old Testament, one is the New Testament. And these are based on failure to look at the immediate context. And that's usually where false interpretations come from. Failure to look at Scripture in its context. I've already talked about those seven is referring to the seven eyes of chapter 3, not the seven lamps. Pipes in verse 2, are not the same as pipes in verse 12. One's a tube, one's a spout. Candlestick. Interesting. Here we have one candlestick. In Revelation 11, it says these are the two olive trees. The two candlesticks, plural. 
Some people assume that this candlestick, one, is also the same as the candlesticks in Revelation 11. No. Those, those are plural. It must be something different. The seven lamps on this candlestick are not the seven lamps mentioned in Revelation 4. When you, when you ignore the immediate context, you end up comparing things that aren't meant to be the same. And that's how people teach that everything in the Old Testament is allegorical and Israel has been replaced by the church. We have to look at the immediate context. Who are these olive trees? That's who is, that's the question that is asked here. And it says they are two anointed ones. Obviously they're men. It's not Israel and the church. It's not the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're men. The word one in Hebrew is the word that's used also for son, ben. Jesus, Yeshua, ben Joseph. Jesus, the son of Joseph. Okay? They're men. In the immediate context of this vision, we have two men who are named by name. No one else. Chapter 3, who's named by name? Joshua. Who's named by name in this vision? Zerubbabel. One was the high priest, one was the governor in that day. They were the fuel. These two men were the fuel for the light of testimony in the temple in the days of the return of the exiles. The proof of this is in the prophet Haggai. If you look at chapter 1, the prophet comes unto Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, unto Joshua, the high priest. Verse 14, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Joshadek, the high priest. And then in chapter 2, those two are mentioned again. These are the olive trees of that day. They are the witnesses, primary witnesses to the people of God's testimony in the second temple that's being rebuilt. These were anointed by the Holy Spirit to rebuild and restore Jerusalem and the temple after the Babylonian captivity. And guess what? Satan stood in opposition. Why was Satan's opposition so fierce? Well, I've already read to you Haggai chapter 2. Satan knows that the glory of that second temple would be greater than the first because Messiah would actually set foot in there. And throughout history, Satan's tried to stop all of those things. He tried to stop the birth of Messiah by having the babies murdered by King Herod. He tried to stop the building of this temple. He'll try to stop the return of of Messiah. He'll try to stop it by destroying Israel. That's why the opposition was so fierce. Understand the immediate context in that there's no way we can divorce Joshua and Zerubbabel from this initial context, we're again reminded of the nature of Old Testament prophecy. Types and antitypes. Shadow fulfillments or immediate fulfillments and ultimate fulfillments. Distant fulfillments. When I say type, a type is a pattern. An antitype is a figure that symbolically corresponds to the initial type. It's like the ultimate type of the type. 
For example, the Passover lamb is a type or a pattern. What is the antitype of the Paschal lamb or the Passover lamb? Jesus, the Passover lamb. The lamb is the type. Jesus is the antitype. Until the antitype appears, the plan and purpose of God or the prophecy remains unfulfilled and incomplete. That is Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah chapter 7, the prophecy to King Ahaz about Emmanuel. The type was Mahershala Hashbaz, the child of Isaiah. He took the virgin prophetess to be his wife in the next chapter. And that child was born. And before he knew the difference between right and wrong, the land was rid of those two kings that were an enemy of Judah. But the antitype was Emmanuel himself. Jesus the Christ, born of a virgin. That prophecy wasn't fulfilled until the antitype came. We have in Daniel chapter 8 and 11, Antiochus Epiphanes was prophesied to come and desecrate the temple and to persecute the people of Israel in the intertestamental period. He was the type. Antichrist is the antitype. And those prophecies aren't ultimately fulfilled until Antichrist comes. And you look in Daniel 8 and 11 and you can see where the prophet literally telescopes from the days of Antiochus 150 B.C. all the way to the days of the end. You see it right there in the text. David's sufferings in the book of Psalms, the type of the antitype, which is what? Jesus' sufferings on the cross and in His ministry. Those Psalms were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. They were fulfilled in David immediately, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Then we have what? John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ and His first coming, mentioned in Matthew, mentioned in Malachi, mentioned in Isaiah. The type. Who's the antitype that will come before the second coming as a forerunner? The Bible says it's Elijah the prophet. We have a type and an antitype. Here, in this vision, Zerubbabel and Joshua are the types. The shadow fulfillment of these olive trees. Revelation 11.4 reveals that the two witnesses of the tribulation are the antitypes, the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. And I believe the ultimate fulfillment or antitype of things that were said about John the Baptist. And that kind of gives us a clue about their identity. I know it's getting a little late here. I've got a few more minutes. Let's look at a few passages. Um, Tony, would you look up Matthew 17, 10 through 12? Eric, Malachi 3, 5 through 6. Matthew 17, 10 through 12. Whenever you're ready, brother. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer over 
course, and then in verse 13, it tells us the disciples understood he was talking about John the Baptist. Here we see Jesus' understanding of Old Testament prophecy. Elias truly will come first and restore all things. Just like the prophet said. That's the ultimate fulfillment. But then Jesus says, but I send to you that Elias has already come and they haven't known him. John the Baptist was the shadow fulfillment. So my understanding of Old Testament prophecy is not just something I picked out of the air. Jesus shows us that right here. Elias must come in the end. That's what Jesus says. He must come. You have to remember that when we're talking about these two witnesses. Elias must first come. Malachi 3, 3, 3 5, and 6. I'm sorry, brother. I'm at chapter 4, 5, and 6. I'm like, whoa, that doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. Sorry. <laughs> Good passage, though. Here it says that Elijah the prophet will come before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. In the immediate context of Malachi, there's no reason to interpret that to be anything else. Neither does Jesus. Jesus says Elijah must first come. His shadow fulfillment came and you didn't believe him. John the Baptist. Obviously, the type of this prophecy is John the Baptist. The antitype is Elijah that must come and do what? Turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the children to their fathers. This is talking about the Jews. His role will be to wake up the Jews lest, they, lest the Lord comes and smites the earth with a curse, which we know He won't. He will set up a kingdom. Okay? So, these two witnesses are tied. They're antitypes of Zerubbabel and Joshua. And they're also tied, I believe, to this prophecy in Malachi. This prophecy in Malachi is talking about one of the two witnesses. The two olive trees. Turn back to Revelation 11. 11 verse 4. These are the two olive trees. This is an allusion to Zechariah 4. And so now you know what that vision is about and how it was fulfilled initially in Joshua and Zerubbabel. How the center piece of that vision was not by might nor by power but by the Spirit of the Lord. These two olive trees will act in the Spirit of God. And that Spirit of God gives them mighty powers. Powers even to defend themselves until their testimony is finished. But then the last part of verse 4 says, These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now some people say that whole verse is referring back to Zechariah 4. But in Zechariah 4 there's only one candlestick. It's not two. Did John not know his Bible? I don't think so. I don't believe the two candlesticks is referring to Zechariah 4. I believe two olive trees is. And that's where the allusion to Zechariah 4 stops. But what about the two candlesticks? There was only one menorah in Zechariah's vision. 
Many misinterpretations of this vision start with the assumption that the candlesticks, plural, in Revelation 4, is referring back somehow to the candlestick singular of Zechariah 4. Guys, when we read the Bible, we've got to remember some basic rules of grammar and interpretation. Remember when we looked at Daniel's 70-week prophecy? And remember how there are people that take what's obviously referring to Antichrist and try to refer it to Messiah because they ignore the nearest antecedent of the pronoun? We can't ignore the nearest antecedent of a pronoun. We'll get a mixed-up misinterpretation. Neither can we ignore the nearest context or immediate context over a distant context. Candlestick in Zechariah is distant. Has there been candlesticks in Revelation up to this point? I mean, maybe we need to look at the immediate context to understand what the reference to candlesticks is. Two candlesticks. We know there are two olive trees after the fashion of Zechariah 4, but what, what does the candlestick mean? What is that emphasizing? Let's go back to the beginning of this book. Uh, Jim, if you'll read Revelation 1, 12, and 13. Ronnie, 1, verse 20. Paul, if you'll read chapter 2, verse 1. And Graham, if you'll read chapter 2, verse 5. This is all Revelation. Yeah, yeah, chapter 1, 12, and 13. We see the vision of Christ, the things that are. I mean, uh, the things which were. In John's threefold outline given to him of what he was to write. The Son of Man, the vision of Christ, was standing amongst seven golden candlesticks. Okay, remember that. Candlesticks. Chapter 1, verse 20. The seven candlesticks were the seven churches. Why were the churches pictured as candlesticks? What are their roles in the church age? To be what? Be a light. Be a testimony. Okay? Chapter 2, verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Again, a reference to the candlesticks. Chapter 2, verse 5. Remember the warning to Ephesus, if you don't repent, I will remove your candlestick. That's not talking about taking away the salvation of individuals in that church. That's talking about removing their testimony in the world. You know, if we're bringing reproach on Christ, the Lord will take us home. Or He'll remove the church if it becomes a reproach. That's not something we desire. That testimony, we want it to burn. We don't want to be disciplined by God and have that testimony removed. So we already have this word candlestick several times in the book of Revelation, and it's referring to the role of the church in the church age, that of a testimony. 
And guess what? The word used for candlestick in 11.4 is the exact same word in the Greek that's used in those passages in chapter 1 and 2. It's the same word. It's the Greek word luknia. It's a reference to light. Candlelight. Or artificial light. You know, the, the King James has come, come under uh, criticism for its, use, for its using the word candlestick. And a lot of the modern versions will say lampstand. You know, candles go back to early Egypt. I mean, they're old. I mean, people have been using candles and making them out of different things for ages. A candle produces what? Artificial light. The light of the menorah was a candlestick. It burned oil. It didn't burn wax, but it burned oil to produce artificial light. Now, when a modern-day American reads the word lampstand, what do they think about? What do you think about? I think about electric light. I got a lampstand in my office that I turn on and it makes light point upward and lights up the whole room. People say that, that candlestick's an out-of-date word and the King James is so antique. Well, no, when I see candlestick, I think of artificial light, and that's exactly what that was in the temple. Not an electric light. So that's just a foolish way to criticize the King James Bible when I believe candlestick is accurate and it's a, it's a truer picture of what was going on, not electric light. Obviously, a lampstand was used in olden times to refer to to, to artificial light as well. It's not a bad word, but nowadays when people read that, they think of electric light. Of course, that's not what was going on back then. The testimony of the churches in a dark world was like that of a candlestick. Don't, don't light your candle and put it under a bushel. Jesus used the same imagery. The church's primary ministry in the church age is to the Gentiles. To be a testimony, a candlestick to the Gentiles. Gospels to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And our hearts and our ministries ought to reach out to Israel. But the primary ministry of the church is to the Gentiles. Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Rev. Romans 11. With the rapture, we know the seven churches represent seven types of churches that exist at all times. They were also actual churches in John's day and a prophetic picture of the church age. But they're the fullness of the church in all times and places. There are Sardis and Ephesus and, 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 and Thyatira and all that goes on today. Those types. With the rapture, this sevenfold testimony, these seven candlesticks are actually removed from the world. The two witnesses are two olive trees in terms of their testimony amongst the Jews of Jerusalem like Zerubbabel and Joshua in Zechariah 3 and 4, they are two candlesticks, referring back to Revelation 1 and 2, in terms of their testimony to the Gentiles who trod Jerusalem underfoot during those days. So the reference to the candlesticks isn't going back to a vision with a single candlestick, it's going back to Revelation 1, 2, and 3. Two olive trees... Zechariah 4, two candlesticks, Revelation 1 and 2. Seven candlesticks after the rapture in terms of God's testimony to the Gentiles become two candlesticks. Subtle proof, in my opinion, that the church has been raptured out. Seven becomes two. 
And I'm going to kind of end with this today. I want to show you kind of a, a map real quick of what the ministry of the gospel will look like during the tribulation. If I can find my marker here. You'll have these two witnesses, these two olive trees. They are olive trees in terms of their ministry to the Jews. And they are candlesticks in terms of their ministry to the Gentiles. Obviously, Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot in those days. Lots of Gentiles in Jerusalem today. There will be then. Obviously, there will be television and these things will be seen throughout the world because the whole world rejoices when they are martyred. But they are at the top in terms of God's testimony. They are at the top in terms of fuel for the light of testimony. Just like Zechariah and Zerubbabel, I mean, Zerubbabel and Joshua were in their day. Falling underneath their influence is 144,000 Jewish witnesses that are sealed in Revelation 7. The two witnesses will be based in Jerusalem. The 144,000 will have a ministry throughout the world. Okay? Underneath the ministry of these um, 144,000 witnesses, the Bible tells us in Matthew 24, 14, I'll quickly read that. It says that, um, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world... For for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. The ministry of the 144,000, they'll complete the job started by the church. And underneath their influence, of course, is the tribulation saints, which are people of all tribes, tongues, and nations that have never clearly heard the gospel and will come to faith as a result of this ministry. But at the top, in terms of testimony, will be these two witnesses who have a specific role for a specific amount of time in Jerusalem, exactly like Zerubbabel and Joshua had for a specific length of time in a specific place in Jerusalem. These are the two olive trees that stand before the God of the whole earth. They have a ministry to Jews and a ministry of preaching doom and judgment to Gentiles, a testimony to the Gentiles, the two candlesticks, just like the churches are candlesticks in the church age. So that's kind of a map of what the testimony of God looks like in the tribulation after the church is taken out. We've already talked about these, and now we're introduced to the two primary authorities in terms of what's happening during that time period. Those at the top, fueling the light of testimony. Now, that's the end of verses 3 and 4. They introduce us. They ID these witnesses for us. Next time, we're going to get into their ministry a little bit. Chapter Verse 3, we have the length and type of their ministry. Um, it's a preaching ministry. It's a... Prophet, they are prophets of doom, clothed in sackcloth, and we know that they preach um, for a certain amount of time, three and a half years. Verse 4, we have their ID badge. Who are they? They're the two olive trees prophesied in Zechariah 4. They're the two candlesticks that replace the seven candlesticks that have been raptured out. In verse 5, next time we're going to talk a little bit about the strength of their ministry. 
And in verse 6, we're talking about the vindication of their ministry. And we'll see that in verse 6, there's some clues there that tell us who these are. We already know Elijah must first come. That ought to tell you right there about one of them. So, but there's an interesting lesson to be learned from verse 5 I'll get into next time. These men of God are empowered by God to defend themselves. Self-defense in their ministry is sanctioned by God. And that's interesting to me. I'm a martial arts instructor. I've been told by some that martial arts is the unfruitful work of darkness. That there is never a time in this life when you have any right to protect yourself when somebody tries to kill you. Or to even, some would say you have no right to even protect your family. And they'll refer to the Sermon on the Mount and say that Jesus Christ is teaching pacifism. I don't believe Jesus Christ is teaching pacifism in that passage. And I believe that what these witnesses are sanctioned to do is proof of that. And so we'll have an interesting discussion next time. I appreciate your prayers in the coming week. I will be in Alaska next week. I will be spending two weeks up there with Brother Sean Holes, another missionary supported by this church. Brother Ken Leitze, we're going to be doing some campus preaching. And I just got confirmation this morning that we're going to be preaching uh, uh, and, uh, at a church on Sunday in Point Barrow, Alaska, uh, which is the northernmost town in all the United States, way up there at the top, town of 4,000 people. You can't get there by road. And uh, it's right up there on the Arctic Ocean. So I'm excited about that, do a little witnessing in that town, and to encourage the brethren of a small church there. So pray as we bring those things together. I'll be gone for two weeks, and uh, uh, I'll be back on the 19th. And when I return on the 20th, I'm going to be visiting my sending church, Living Word Baptist, with Brother James. So we're going to take a three-week hiatus on the book of Revelation, and you guys will get back into one of the books you're studying. Uh, I'm not sure who's going to be teaching, but um, Daddy's going to be teaching. First uh, Corinthians? Second Corinthians. Okay, great. So you guys will enjoy that, and then I'll come back. In, uh, in October or at the end of the month for three Sundays, we'll get back into Revelation. And then after that, you guys will get back. I think Bob's going get, to get into some, some teaching uh, during that time. And then we'll pick up Revelation again. So we're going to kind of go off and on a little bit. So we don't get... Uh, I think that's good sometimes. So I'll look forward. We came to a great stopping point today. We're through verse 4 of chapter 11. And now it'll move a little faster simply because we've gotten through some of the Old Testament typology. But a good lesson today about the nature of Old Testament prophecy, when you study it, remember that. Remember that. And let Scripture be the interpreter of Scripture. And we can protect ourselves from coming to cockamamie conclusions and false doctrines like the elders have at the Church of Wales. Interpret Scripture with Scripture. Alright, as far as that, we've all got work to do. Those that accuse us, uh, we got important work going on. So we're not going to come down from the wall and be bothered with that, okay? Go about your business. No me importante, we say in Spanish, and matlab china, we say in uh, Nepali. A very, very blunt way of saying, ah, I don't care.